This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Have Another podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. Thank you so much for joining us today. This episode of the podcast is supported by Sidekick Tool. Sidekick develops recovery tools for runners so you can heal from your injury quicker and get back to doing what you love. If you're suffering from plantar fasciitis, shin splints, IT band tightness, or even knee pain, muscle scraping therapy works by breaking up blocked vessels to heal stressed tissue in your body. We've seen athletes like Sarah Hall, Molly Seidel use this tool, and it's a safe and effective injury prevention and injury relief tool. The good news is you all can save 15% when you go to sidekicktool.com slash IHA, and that discount will automatically be applied to your order. That's sidekicktool.com slash IHA. All right, friends. Well, today on the episode, I'm talking with my good friend, Brad Stolberg. So excited to have him back on the show. He was on episode 336 with Shalane Flanagan, talking about the practice of groundedness. And he was also episode 172, talking about his book, The Passion Paradox. Now, Brad's newest book, Master of Change, How to Excel When Everything is Changing, Including You, comes out September 8th. So in seven days, and of all of his books, which I've read all of them, this is my favorite. It might be the season of life I am in, but it spoke to me so deeply. The book offers a new model that describes change as an ongoing cycle of order, disorder, and reorder. And we return to stability, but that stability is somewhere new. Drawing on modern science, ancient wisdom, and daily practice, Brad offers concrete principles for developing a mindset called rugged flexibility, along with habits and practice to implement it. I love that term, rugged flexibility. That's like my favorite thing about the whole book and what he says about what rugged flexibility is. Now, I always love talking with Brad on the show. He's also been a guest a couple times over on Relay, the other podcast I'm a part of, which by the way, Relay is now open to the public. You can just find it when you search Relay Podcast on any podcast app. Brad is also a coach to executives, coaches, and high-achieving individuals. He's the author of the books I already mentioned, Master of Change, The Practice of Groundedness, Peak Performance, and The Passion Paradox. And he also writes and works with Steve Magnus over on The Growth Equation, which is a popular blog, and they also have a podcast. He's been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Outside Magazine. I love when I see something pop up and I'm like, oh, that was written by Brad. I've actually had a neighbor here in Raleigh send me an article and say, hey, I thought I read this and thought that you would enjoy it. And what do you know? It was by Brad Stolberg. I hope you get a lot out of this episode and I highly encourage you to check out Brad's new book. Go pre-order it today. Pre-orders are super important for authors. It's called Master of Change, by far my favorite of all of his books. And uh, if you enjoy the show, leave us a quick rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening and share it with someone who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for being here and enjoy my conversation with Brad Stolberg. All right, friends, today on the podcast, we have one of my favorites, returning guest Brad Stolberg on the show. Welcome back, Brad. Thanks, Lindsay. This is one of my favorite podcasts, so it's a double favorite today. What's going on in your life? You have a big thing happening soon. When does your newest book, Master of Change, launch? My newest book, Master of Change, launches September 5th. So depending on when this is published, it will have either just come out or it's just about to come out. I mean, I feel so lucky that I've already gotten to read it. Yeah, you got an advanced copy. You're one of my good (laughs) friends that also has a good podcast. You got to be both of those. You can't just have a good podcast and you can't just be my good friend. You have to do both. I win. I win. Okay, so here's the thing. This book, like, it's my favorite of all of your books because it is so relevant to my life right now. You're hitting the, like, people that are approaching middle age here real hard. 
I think so. And I think that it's the most relevant to my life for the same reason mm. right now. Uh, just like my other books were the most relevant to my life then. This came up in a conversation the other day with a friend who doesn't have a podcast, so they haven't read the book yet. But <laughs> we're talking about one of my favorite performing artists is Jason Isbell. Oh, I love him. Yeah, he sees directly into my soul. Mm. And he is just like an older mentor. But if you follow his music from like Southeastern to where he is right now, it's so clear that like he's just becoming more and more of an adult. Mm. And I think that in a way, this book is like a we're becoming adults kind of book. Yes. That's interesting you say that because you mentioned Jason Isbell, like, well, he's been making music this whole time and you've been writing this whole time. And in the back of my head, like, I think someday I will write a book, but I keep thinking I'm not there yet. I haven't reached where I need to be yet. I, I want to like experience X, Y, and Z first or overcome this fear first. And so, um, that's, that's just like, as I'm thinking that through, I'm like, what you waiting for girl? (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's it. And I think that's the beautiful thing about any kind of art or intellectual work is that, um, as you grow, it grows. And when you look back on stuff, you want it to be defensible, but it should be kind of cringeworthy when you look back on it. Right. That's so, so true. Um, Okay, so if we have new listeners here, I realize we just hopped into it. So let's just run down a brief history of Brad, the books you've wrote, and what you do for work. All right. So what I do for work is I wear two primary hats. The first is is a writer, and I'm fascinating on um, things that underlie sustainable excellence, which I define as feeling good and doing good over the long haul. Um, in my other hat, I have a small coaching practice where I work with individuals on the things that I write about. And then I'm also on faculty at the University of Michigan. Ooh, I don't think I knew that part. Is that new? Relatively new. I was a fellow there for like four years and then they finally bit the bullet and made me an adjunct professor. Oh, wow. So you're like teaching classes? Uh, I don't do it in person, or at least since COVID, I haven't, although that might change this year. But um, yeah, they have a couple courses on personal development and leadership in the School of Public Health, and I get to lecture. Oh, that's so fun. I love it. Yeah, um, me too. What about the growth, growth equation? Yeah, so the growth equation. Oh my God, Steve is going to kill me. I forgot the growth equation. The growth <laughs> equation is this small media platform, although it's growing, that I co-founded with Steve Magnus, who I know you've also had on the podcast, where we explore sustainable excellence together in a long-standing weekly newsletter. We have a podcast called The Growth Equation, um, and then all of our books also live under that umbrella. Yeah. Uh, well, then I was like, well, maybe he's not doing The Growth Equation any- anymore. No, Steve's going to kill me. I should yeah. have said the growth equation. I am still doing the growth equation. I love, oh, we I, I love, love you, Steve. the growth equation. We love you, Steve. Yep, yep. Uh, okay, so Master of Change. So I pick up the book, which by the way, I was looking for the book the other day. I was like, I got I to gotta read it. I couldn't find it. And then I got the mail and the, the final copy showed up. So you had actually sent me like the pre-copy and I'd gotten started with that. And it was in one of my three purses I found later and I'm like leaving for the pool and then I open my mail and I have the brand new one and this is like the final version I believe yeah Um, exciting so that was even more exciting I was like good I'm reading the final thing um but the first time I picked it up because like I picked it up I paused for a little bit did some other life things and I'm like come back to it because I never want to read a book too far before an interview because I want it to be fresh on my mind Um, but I remember picking it up and opening it and this was either right before or right after I had my hysterectomy and I was like, this is like so perfect for my life right now because I've been like anticipating this big change for so many years, like literally a decade and it's about to happen or it just had happened. Um, and so I feel like I couldn't have opened it at a better time. Yeah. I remember not wanting to say anything about it because like the last thing I want to do is be like, read my book. It might help because who the hell knows what's going to help when you go undergo a big change like that. But I do remember thinking like, huh, like I wonder if she'll open my book around this time. And if she does, God, I hope it helps. The very least, I hope it doesn't hurt. So I'm really honored to hear that it was um, a companion for you as you underwent that big surgery and change. Yeah. And you know, like for me with that, it's like, I was never scared of surgery. I think some people are like fearful of having surgery and going under the knife and anesthesia. 
I was just fearful of like what that meant for my life. Like there's a speed. I always felt like there was this like before and after before the hysterectomy, after the hysterectomy, I'm going to wake up and be 10 years older. And obviously none of that happened. Like there are certain things I have to do. I have to take estrogen now because I got my ovaries removed as well. But one of the things in the book that I, I just loved so much and it's been something I've been working on throughout my whew, working through all of my anxieties over the past year that I finally gotten help for is like, like accepting what, what it is like accepting where we are. Like we're, we can't necessarily change what the fact is. The fact is I had to have that surgery. Um, but we can change how we respond instead of having these like jerk reactions. That's right. In the book, I call it the difference between responding and reacting. And reacting is really rash, and it tends to be um, like a researcher might call it a hot emotion. So there's not a lot of thoughtfulness behind it, whereas responding is much more skillful. It's much more deliberate. It's much more intentional. It's much more thoughtful. And I think in the case of a major health event, um, our default is often to react because it is our body. It is like mm -hmm. there's no greater source of identity than the organs that allow you to be you and to function. Um, the only challenge is that when we're in reactionary mode, it tends not to benefit us as much as when we can slow down, be deliberate, be intentional and respond. And this doesn't mean that the changes aren't necessarily going to be immensely hard and challenging, or maybe they just downright suck. Like, you know, there's nothing good about a hysterectomy. There's nothing good about a cancer diagnosis. Rarely is there anything good about a marriage that falls apart that ends in a divorce. And I think back to that mature adult thing, part of being a mature adult is accepting that sometimes the world is cruel and random and things just suck. And if we can just get through those things that suck, we gain more compassion, we gain more strength, we gain more fortitude. And more than anything, like it just helps us love the other people and pursuits in our life that are meaningful. But I want to be clear. I said after. Like the worst advice is like, oh, you got this. You're strong. Yeah. This is going to make you stronger. Like maybe, but maybe not. Maybe it just sucks. Yeah. But what the research shows and what so many people's personal examples show is if we can just get through the suck and just get to the other side without any expectation of what will be there, we tend to emerge from these kinds of changes a little bit kinder, a little bit wiser, a little bit more compassionate. Yeah. I always like think, I'm like, when am I going to arrive? I, You know, you grow up and you look at your parents and you think, well, they're not scared of X, Y, and Z. They're my parents. Oh, they were so like, scared though. They were so scared. And it's like, it's like, am I going to be 70 and still scared of like dying of cancer and, or getting in a plane crash or whatever all these fears are? And I'm like, I just want to get to the place where I arrive. And I know that you don't like, you're never going to like alleviate all the fear, but this mindfulness practice, what is it? The behavioral therapy, what is the behavioral therapy that you did? Yeah. Acceptance and commitment therapy, um, is the, the name that is, um, I think that what you're going for and then behavioral yeah. activation is kind of the psychological tool. So it's both, right? You do both. Yeah, acceptance and commitment therapy is the, the overarching umbrella, and then behavioral activation is this tool. It's a part of it. And acceptance and commitment, in, in brief, is a therapy, but it's really, I think, a philosophy of living. Mm. And it is so simple, um, yet, as we know, simple doesn't always mean easy. And it's based on this tenet that to have psychological health and stability during all periods of life, but especially during um, chaos and changes – there's really only two things that we need to do. We need to accept what is happening and see it mm -hmm. clearly for what it is. So not deny it, not run away from it, um, not resist it. Just accept what's happening. We don't have to like it, but we have to accept it. And then the next phase is to commit to living in alignment with your values regardless. So it doesn't talk about getting fear to go away. It doesn't talk mm -hmm. about calming yourself down. It doesn't talk about, you know, being positive and optimistic, although that that's not bad if you can be, but it simply says like this is what's happening right now. These are my values and I'm just going to show up and commit to living in alignment with my values regardless of how I'm feeling. And when it comes to fear, what that often means is taking fear along for the ride. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if you have this experience, we're of a similar age. I think your kids are a little bit older than mine, but 
sometimes when I'm driving my son to school, I'm going to get emotional just thinking about this. I'll look at him and, you know, he's just tired, but like he has like sometimes sad eyes, just like his dad. Mm -hmm. Like he's a deeply feeling kid. Mm -hmm. And then I think like I'm supposed to have it together for this kid Mm -hmm. and I'm just making it up as I go. Totally. And I don't think we're ever going to get rid of that. I think that all that we can do is kind of like accept that about ourselves and be like, yeah, because everyone is and that's okay. The other day, my one of my kids was having like just a lot of emotions going on and he was bringing up like, what does it all matter? Like fear of death, like all these things. And I'm like, oh, it just broke my heart to think that this little boy was having these big feelings and like fears when you think of like childhood, you shouldn't be worried about that yet because death should seem so far away for them. Um, and I, I didn't know what to do. You know, I just hugged him and told him I loved him and talked about all the beautiful things in our lives. And, um, anyway, we're getting him help, but, um, I feel you like, it's like, oh my gosh, like he's going to feel all these things. And then when he's my age, he's also going to realize that mom and dad didn't really know what they were doing. Yeah. And I think the one thing that we can try to do is use our tools, um, and our awareness of these things to, um, hopefully put our kids in a good position to deal with these thoughts and emotions and to manage them. Um, and whether you do that yourself or whether you do that with the help of a professional, I mean, it clearly depends on so many different factors. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's back to acceptance. Like I think the ultimate thing to accept is like, you don't have it all together and the ground that you stand on may feel firm and that's good, but we also have to be able to like show up when the ground doesn't feel firm. And when we're not super confident and when we don't have everything figured out. And this is true whether it's in parenting, whether it's in our professional lives, in our personal lives, um, like getting comfortable with the groundlessness, which can be really uncomfortable, is such an important practice and really hard. Yeah, for sure. How do we relate that to athletics? Mm. So I think that the way that this relates to athletics is um, twofold. The first is what I'm going to call acute changes that happen to you as an athlete. And there are so many of these. At the most trivial level, it's like you mess up a workout. And now like, oh, I'm a little bit off plan. I need to change my training. Or you pull a muscle. Bigger changes can be um, a legitimate injury. Or maybe you need orthopedic surgery. And then the second big way that we're constantly in conversation with chaos as athletes is the ongoing change that so many of us like to pretend doesn't exist, which is aging. <laughs> and aging comes for all of us. All of and us. And like whatever age you started the sport at, you've got years where you're going to get better and then eventually you're going to get worse by objective measures, by performance. And I think that where athletes run into traps with change is they struggle with both of these categories, the acute changes that throw them off and then the gradual change of aging. Well, and with aging and running in particular, it's like – Yes, eventually we do hit this this peak or whatever, but we can hit that later if we adapt and make changes, but it's hard to do that because we're so used to, say, run 50 miles a week, strength train once a week, and that be that, and, you know, just run a little bit faster and get our goals, but, like, you can change things and still get faster, but you can't just keep doing the same thing. That's right. But eventually, even though I love how you're like, even like not wanting to fully accept this right now, like eventually you get slower. <laughs> you so will. like the prime example of an athlete, <laughs> not a runner, but a phenomenal athlete in his own right that I profile in the book is Roger Federer. Uh-huh. So Roger Federer, one of the greatest tennis players to ever live, some would argue the greatest, um, also the greatest longevity in the sport. So he was dominating the sport at age 36 and 37. And this is a sport where most males hit their prime between like 26 and 30. And what people often overlook about Federer's story is between the ages of 33 and 36, his career tanked. He Mm. suffered a string of injuries, and it finally looked like aging was catching up with Federer. He was dropping out of tournaments that he once would have won in his sleep. Pundits were speculating, is he going to retire? And Federer made all kinds of changes to his game. So the way that he trained... Um, even like the racket that he used, how he hit his one-handed backhand, he did all these things to adapt to being an aging tennis player. And he had the 
best, well, some would say the best, if not the second best year of his career at age 36. So he was ranked number two in the world. He won two grand slams. He had the best winning percentage of his career. And again, this is at an age in tennis that is considered like a dinosaur. <laughs> so yes, we can adapt to changing, but you know what else is true? A couple of years later at age 42, Federer retired. So like eventually it catches up. All right, friends, this episode is supported by my friends at Prevenex and they have the best supplements. If you are looking for a multivitamin, a joint supplement, protein powder, this is the place to go. They even have great vitamins for kids. My kids take the Superbites. Their products are all clinically tested and proven. And what I really want to focus on right now is the joint supplement. It delivers ingredients that are clinically proven to offer the most comprehensive and complete joint protection and relief available on the market. So many runners are using this. I use it every day. And the main ingredients are proven to be up to five times more beneficial than ingredients you're gonna see in other products. They have an anti-inflammatory and pain reliever in them that provides additional support for the joints. I'm impressed, this genuinely worked. My close friend told me about this product and I thought he was full of crap, but my joints feel better after three days on this supplement, crazy results. The great thing about Prevenex is they have a money back guarantee. If you are not satisfied after 30 days, you can get your money back. Go to Prevenex.com and use the code ANOTHER and that'll get you 15% off your order. That's Prevenex.com. Use the code ANOTHER and that will get you 15% off your order. So, okay, then let's talk about our values then. It might sound basic, but I'm like, okay, like, how do we set up our values? Because, I mean, what are my values? Like, being kind, living in community, uh, working hard, moving my body every day. I don't even know. Like, that's just like what I thought off the top of my head. But is there a good way that we can kind of sort through values? And is it smart to have like, these are like my four things that I revolve my life around or mold my life after? I don't like to get too prescriptive because different people come to this differently. So I'm going to um, say something that illustrates a common approach, and then I'd encourage listeners to wrestle with it and make it their own. What I find works really well for people, including myself, is maybe once or twice a year to sit down for like an hour to an hour and a half and just reflect on the qualities towards which you aspire, like the things that are really important to you or that when you're at your best you feel like you are embodying. Or when you're older, you want to look back on yourself and be proud. Like, what would make you proud? What values? And those are good ways to come up with a list of values. I do think that it's helpful to narrow that down to three to five. Because okay. it's important to have a forcing mechanism. Because, like, if everything's important, then nothing's important, right? So we do mm. need to get down to some things that are truly important. Then for each value, I think it's really helpful to define it in very concrete terms. So you mentioned like move your body. Well, what does that mean? You mentioned be a good family member, I think in community, good neighbor. What does that mean? Like get really concrete. This can't just be an inspirational poster that lives on Instagram or on the wall. Like it's got to be something that you can show up and do. And then after you define it, get one level deeper and then come up with the actual practices mm. that allow you to show up and exhibit that value. So you could go from community down to be involved in my local community and be a good neighbor to every Saturday night host a mm -hmm. uh, dinner for neighbors or once a month organize a potluck or sit on my front porch every Thursday for two hours and just talk to the people that come by. Like you want to get that concrete because then you can't procrastinate or run away from it. I love like, that. The more broad the value, the easier it is to be like, ah, I kind of am a good neighbor. But like once you get down to something that is either you do or you don't, um, you can't you can't run away from it. And what's nice about your values is that you can change how you apply them over time. So they're really resilient to change. I like to think of them as a key source of stability in your life because the world around you can be changing like crazy, but generally we can still practice our core values even if we have to apply them somewhat flexibly. Well, and the commitment to like a certain thing I think is really important there because we can say like, this is my value, but then life gets really busy or you get tired or you want to do this instead. But if you are committed to it, you're going like, to live it out more naturally. That's right. Especially if it's attainable. Yeah. Now I'm like, should I sit on my porch every Thursday for two hours? 
when I sit out on my porch or when I'm out, though, and neighbors are walking by, they're probably like, oh, great. Keep walking. Keep walking. Don't look. She's going to talk to me for an hour. Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe <laughs> they love talking to you. Maybe the, some. Maybe It's some. a North Carolina thing, the whole porch sitting thing. It wasn't like this. And in Oakland, you sit on your porch. You're like New York. Everyone walks by you and like they pretend to be on your phone. Yeah, yeah. But I sit on my porch and it's like I'm holding court. I got nine yeah. people coming by. Next thing I know, James is bringing like a six pack of beers um, someone's like, should we order pizza? It's yeah. like, I got a, I, I got a family. They're yeah. like, great, bring the kids. Yeah. It's actually my favorite part of living in Western North Carolina. There's a lot about Southern culture that I find like weird and some yeah. that I, some, some parts that to be honest, I find kind of repulsive. Yeah. Um, but the whole like Southern comfort, like friendliness, I actually really like. Oh, it's great. I mean, I, I do feel like coming from the Midwest, we have some of that there too, but it is it is a. It's different here. It is different. Yeah, it's it's a more chill friendliness. Cause I grew. Do you know I grew up in the Midwest? I grew up in Michigan. I went to school in Michigan. So Maybe. Midwest friendly is like you run into someone in the grocery store, you gossip a little, you hold the door open for them. Yeah. Carolina friendliness is like, yeah, like let's let's bring out a speaker and put on Jason Isbell. Come on and, over. And, and come on over. Exactly. Come lay on my couch. Yeah, actually, like just yesterday, my uh, third. My third kid's friend popped over at 8 a.m. And he was like, hey, can Russell play? And I'm like, yes, he can. Go, shoot, get out. Um, I find myself every day just thanking people for taking children off my hands. Um, <laughs> and uh, they were going to a movie at 2.30 and taking him with them. And at like noon, I checked in. I was like, hey, I know you guys are taking Russell to the movie at 2. Like, do you want him to come home for a little bit to get a break? And she sent me a picture and she was like, he's napping on the couch right now. All good. And I'm like. I just love that like my kid is at someone's house from 8 a.m. and feels comfortable just being like, I'm going to fall asleep on the couch. You yeah, know? We've, we've got that too. It's great. Yep. It's so, so good. Um, and when I first moved here, I thought, is this Southern nice? Like just being court, you know, like doing what is proper and right. But I have found there are a few instances where that has been the case. But most instances... People are just very like, come on in. Like, you don't even knock. Like, my neighbor, she'll just walks right in, and I love it. I'm like, oh, hey, what's up? It makes me feel like I'm in, like, a college dorm or something. Yeah, and I think that, though, we, we also probably have a little bit of a bias sample, like you being in Raleigh and me being in Asheville. I think Chapel Hill's probably like that. Um, yeah, these are, like, true. really kind of, like, warm places. Yeah. Um, but anyways, that's neither here nor there. Core values are very important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Something I wanted to bring up, though, was so we talked about routines, right? Like you make this your core value and your routine becomes sitting on your front porch or whatever. Uh, but I also wanted to talk about productivity because like productivity can't squash down the fear or squash down whatever it is you're struggling with. But I have never been in a place where it's not been helpful, like when I'm agonizing over something if I can like have my mind on something that feels productive and helpful in some way, even if it doesn't help a lot, it helps a little. Yeah. So I think that what you're hitting on is this very paradoxical relationship between routine productivity and change or um, challenge. And I'm just going to get right into an illustrative example. So. Yeah. I think one that your listeners will be really familiar with is the number of athletes in the running community, but particularly the ultra running community mm. that are moving from um, substance use disorder or some sort of other like really traumatic experience in their life. And then they move to ultra running mm -hmm. and then they can sometimes become like almost compulsive about ultra running. Yes. And... I think that the answer here is not, is this good or bad? Mm -hmm. it's, it depends. So if you're going from opioid use or if you just suffered the loss of a spouse or a parent or your marriage just fell apart and the options are throw yourself into ultra running or use drugs, illicit drugs, or spiral into despair and depression, ultra running is unequivocally a much better choice. Right. Might not be the healthiest thing for your body. People argue over that, but you're in a community, you're striving for goals, so on and so on. Now, if 10 years down the road, 
your life is still really small because all you can do and think about is ultra running, then perhaps like it's not the best thing for you. So I ultimately think the way to think about this, and this is for any productivity, ultra running is like one of the most productive things you can do or unproductive. I guess it depends on who you're <laughs> at. But like, it's definitely doing something and very hard and frequently is um, this is from the psychoanalyst James Hollis. It's so simple. I love it. He just says, ask yourself, is this enlarging my life or diminishing my life? Hmm. And that tells you everything you need to know. So if you're someone that's coming off an opiate addiction and you get like super into ultra running and you ask, is this enlarging my life or diminishing it? Of course it's enlarging your life because it's keeping you from something that is like the ultimate diminisher. But if eight years later you're struggling to date or you're not there for your kids or you're phoning it in professionally or you never see any of your friends because of ultra running, because of your relationship with it, and then you ask, is this enlarging my life or diminishing it? Well, if the answer is diminishing it, then it might be time for a change to that thing. So I think like uber productivity, throwing yourself into stuff isn't good or bad. It completely depends on the context in the situation. And that's only for you as the person that's going through it to make the judgment. So I'm not a fan of like, this is good or this is bad. Right. Like, it, it depends. This is good for some people in some situations and bad for others in other situations. It can be challenging. And when I think about change, I, like when I think about it in relation to my career and like with the running podcast, for instance, like I feel like I kind of ebb and flow of when I get excited about things, when I don't, what I'm following, what I'm not following. And sometimes I feel like I'm like, you know, I have a lot of kids and like <laughs> life stuff going on with that, <laughs> um, that I don't follow it as closely as I once did. Like what big race was on recently and uh, USA's and I like I was like I don't have time for that like I'm not gonna sit on the couch and watch USA's I'm like doing this doing that with my kids we went to the beach and I felt almost I didn't feel guilty but I just felt like what's happening I'm being am I like tearing myself away from this culture and sport that I've been ingrained in for so long and it have made a career out of um but I don't want to hold myself to this like standard that I have to be invested just to be invested for work. If I'm like, my heart is like, I don't want to pay attention to that right now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you it's are really talking, hard. you are talking about like core identity change. Yeah. Or at least the potential for it. And yeah. what I'm hearing you say is that running is still a part of your identity, a huge part of your identity. I know it is. Yeah. But the way that you relate to it might be shifting, and it might not be as big a part of your identity. Perhaps when you had no kids, for sure, for sure, it was a much bigger part of your identity. Or I don't know when you got married, but perhaps before you got married, or before you had the parenting podcast, or before you got like, you know, uh, you, you tested for like this thing that is so a part of like female reproductive health and was so scary, and now suddenly like watching USA's on the couch. Maybe it even kind of feels trivial. And and I'm not I don't want to put words or feelings in your mouth or offend anyone, but like your relationship to the thing changes. And this is like a central thing that I found so interesting to explore for this book is not so much the external changes around us, even though that's interesting too, but the internal changes. Like the subtitle of the book is like how to make sense of yourself when everything is changing, including mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm hearing you getting at this a little bit. And I ultimately think there's like two kind of guiding frameworks that can help us. The first, I think, is to think of our identity like a house with different rooms. And maybe you have the spouse room, the parent room, the athlete room, the running culture room, the, um, I don't know, just like the, I mean, you tell me, like, what are some other rooms? The music room, I know you love music. Mm -hmm. So you've got like these different parts of your identity. And it's okay to spend a lot of time in one room for a year, for five years, maybe even for a decade, so long as you have other rooms to go into. You never want to leave any of the rooms completely behind because over time, things are going to shift. So maybe, again, I'm not putting, like, listeners, Lindsay and I have not talked about this, so this is just me playing, like, armchair analyst. <laughs> maybe you'll spend more time in some of the other rooms of your life for the next 10 years but then I'm going to make you cry, Lindsay, when your kids leave the house, if they, you know, thrive and leave the house. <laughs> Hopefully they do. Maybe you'll go back into that running room and spend all your time there again. And like, that's okay. So I think people struggle because we think like I'm either in or I'm out instead of this is one component of my identity. 
and I can spend a lot of time in that component for certain seasons of my life, and then I can leave that room, but I can always go back into it. And I think where we struggle with these changes are when we fuse our identity to one room and we become like a singular identity, then we get really fragile. Because oh, then sure. when things start to change, it's like, who are we? So this, is, this framework has helped me so much because like I don't have too many rooms, but the rooms I have, I care so deeply about. Um, and when something's not going well in one room, thank God I have those others to put mm-hmm. myself into. Yeah. Does that make sense? I, yeah, for sure. I know. It's really it's really weird and hard. I do think you're right though. Like I think running consumes And there's research. This isn't just me like being right. So in the in the literature for the yeah. nerds out there, this is called self complexity. Yes. And the more rooms that we have that can like integrate and relate into a cohesive whole, the more resilient we are to change. And this has been studied. Um so I call it rooms. Researchers say the more self complexity you have, the better. Well, I meant I think you're right about me. <laughs> Oh, I also don't know that. (laughs) I wasn't questioning your theory, though. Um, No, I just, yeah, it is a weird shift. And I honestly think that I, part of the reason I started the other podcast for parents is. Which, by the way, I talk to everyone about the podcast. I tell them all to listen to it. And that is the best titled podcast in the history of podcasts. Now that I have more than one kid, especially, I'm constantly twice a week, maybe, maybe daily. Like, why is everybody always yelling? Yes. Always. I mean, I, I just like, honestly, I wish, and I know I like put stuff on my Instagram stories and stuff like that, but like sometimes I'm just standing in my kitchen and I'm like, I wish someone could see the insanity here right now. Like, and I just feel so crazy because it is so loud and aggressive and physical and whoo. Yeah. Um, and most yeah, of we my... don't. We, we we I don't have the same number of kids, nor the like older boys. So I yeah, can't imagine it's physical. That. It's yeah, we don't they're... get physical. What we get right now is like Lila just starts being so loud because yeah. she realized that she can be so loud, and then Theo starts yelling like Lila's being so loud, it hurts my ears. Uh huh. And then Lila starts yelling louder, and then the dog starts barking, and I just look at Caitlin and I'm like can I go outside? And she's like, no, fix it. <laughs> if you're going outside, I'm going with you. Right, exactly. That's what she says. <laughs> um, yeah, and also my boys, like, yeah, they're getting bigger. And so, like, yeah. it, the physicality takes up more space. And anyway, I so I, I really think I started that show years ago knowing that my life and my interests were, like, becoming, like, more expansive and, and what I cared about. That being said... I'll have another is is still like my you know it's like my baby it's like my thing and it also runs like a machine a well-oiled machine so I, I it won't be gone from me but I think I have to just come to the acceptance that like I don't have to be like the running podcast I don't have to be like the right. person that has all the news and the stories like I'm like a part of the world and the culture but like but can I, I can I speculate something? Can I interject yeah. here because I think it's yeah. important? My yeah. guess is that your audience is fine with that because you're mm-hmm. taking your audience along for the ride. Mm-hmm. So all these people, mm-hmm. that, how, how, how long has I'll Have Another been going on? Like a decade? Seven years. Seven years. So seven years ago when everyone either didn't have kids or had younger kids or were kids themselves, everyone like wanted to know the scoop on like, you know, what happened at this major marathon or who qualified for USA or like what's the gossip between mm-hmm. like, you know, Kara, Sarah and Shalane. Yep. And that audience now, maybe like 20% of them still wants that. But my guess is the other 80% finds like you and your journey to look a lot like theirs. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be like some young gun. If, if if it hasn't happened already, you know better than me. That's like filled your shoes. Yep. I talk about this with on the, the male side of like running culture is Mario Fraioli. Yep. Go through the same exact thoughts. Yep. And I, I tell him the same thing. I'm like, there's going to be some like hungry 24 year old that wants to recap every race. Like you paid your dues. That's not your job anymore. Yep. And I know that, you know, as someone that cares about running culture, I don't really want to hear that. I'm, I'm like <laughs> there for these conversations. So yes. keep having them. Oh, I love that. Thank you. And I, that's that that's one of the things, you know, a maturity thing, too, is like when you don't focus on what everybody else is doing and you focus on like living into and leaning into what you're actually passionate about like get that noise out of here but it is it can be hard to do 
And so I, I am actually super mindful about my time on social media and things like that for that reason, because I'm like, well, if like even with my parenting podcast, I'm like, well, you know what? Like, I don't want to just talk about parenting. I want to talk about like Botox and like just like things that 40 year old women think about outside of kids, too. So I'm like, I can just do that. I can explore whatever I want to explore. And people say like, oh, you have to niche down to, you know, excel at things. And it's like, okay, well, maybe, but I'm going to follow where my like interests are. Yeah. And I think that that's the best way to do it, especially like if you have built an audience and you just have to be okay with like some people are going to fall off and no hard feelings. That's okay. Um, but a lot of people are like on the same ride as you and they're, they're probably really grateful that you're there to help guide them along the way. All right, friends. I want to thank 2B4 for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. This is a unique pre-workout that is made up of blackcurrant berries grown in New Zealand that contain high levels of antioxidants called anthocyanins. Blackcurrant anthocyanins are science-backed and benefit-packed. Blackcurrant berries improve your endurance, they kickstart your recovery, and they strengthen your immunity. You can drink it daily 30 to 45 minutes before you work out. I just mix it up with water and take it before a workout. I am loving it. 2 Before is offering an exclusive limited time offer to our listeners. Big discount here, 30%. Nobody does 30%. 30% off 20 packs plus free shipping when you use the code Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y at checkout. Just go to 2before.com, that's the number 2, before.com, and use the code Lindsay. Have you thought about that with your writing, though? Like, oh, yeah. if you get an idea that's, like, off the rails or, like, totally different from what people are used to? Well, I think, you... I'm, I think I'm kind of already there. Like, yeah. my first book was called Peak Performance, and it was, like, mm. all about, like, how to be and do better. Mm. And that stuff's still defensible. And it's still like that book still sells because there's a lot of like 20 to 30 year old boys and girls that just want to crush it. Yeah. Um, but I look back on that book and like part of me cringes yeah, a little bit. Yep, yep. Like especially I portrayed meditation and mindfulness in that book because this is where I was at like, you know, over 10 years ago. Yeah. As like something that improves your focus and thereby improves your performance. Ah. And now if you ask me like what the point of mindfulness is, it's like to be like a softer, more compassionate human. Uh, and anything else is a byproduct. Whereas in that book, I'm like, it makes you better. And like, maybe it'll make you a little bit nicer. I don't even think the word compassion was in my vocabulary. Um, so I think I'm kind of like already doing that. And I fired my first agent um, because he wanted me to write Peak Performance 2 and Peak Performance 3. And no, for Groundedness, oh. which is like kind of like the first detour. Okay, um, yeah. So this book and Groundedness are with the same agent, Lori, who's wonderful. And my first agent was wonderful. Like, he took a bet on me and Steve because we co-wrote that book before we were anyone. Yeah. Um, but he wanted us to write an updated peak performance every five to ten years. Yeah. Niche down. Like, this is it. Own it. This is, this is your lane. This is it. And I'm like, no. Like, it's it, 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 that was my lane then. And I still care about performing well. I still coach people. I think I can still have those conversations. But I just don't find them that interesting anymore. Okay, this is giving me I just had a ad pop up for from Tim Ferriss on Rich Roll and like did you see this too? You're giving me Tim Ferriss vibes like how he was like so obsessed with productivity and like doing all the things in like short periods of time and now he's the clip I saw was like the exact opposite. He, yeah. But I'm like but is that because you have a lot of money now because once you succeed well, I, and yeah. you're there, you don't have to hustle. Yeah, and I, I I don't have Tim Ferriss money. I don't have Tim Ferriss yeah. like status. I think Tim Ferriss has come a long way. I think where we differ and it's a pretty significant difference and like I don't think the stuff that Tim Ferriss was talking about 10 years ago is defensible. Ah. Peak performance is very defensible. Like that gotcha. book popularized stress plus rest equals growth. Yes. Like Steve and I were talking about the importance of like productivity being a dumb goal. And like rest being really important. And that still book, that book is still like read throughout the um, National Basketball Association and NFL. Oh, awesome. So like that book, that book's not bullshit. That book yep. is about how to perform at the highest level. 
and I defend all of that. I guess what I'm saying is like my interests are not just about performing at the highest level. Yes. Whereas I think Tim Ferriss's stuff 10 years ago was like a whole lot of clown shit kabuki. And now he's like really grown up and matured. And I think he's someone that was looking for happiness in all the wrong places through like productivity and hacks Mm. and is starting to realize that. But I have a lot of respect for Tim because like it's very hard to change your mind on this stuff. Um, But I I guess what I'm saying, and maybe I'm wrong and your listeners can write in and tell me, but I don't think I was ever like a bro. Oh, no. No, 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 no. I think I've just moved from like evidence-based performance to like being a whole full human being. And even the, the the verbiage I use, right, like from performance to excellence. So performance is like pretty clear, like you are going to do well at this thing where excellence is like a, an old Greek virtue about mm-hmm. being like a full-fledged human. And I'm more interested in that now. For sure. And by no means was I like, you're like Tim Ferriss. I just, that clip from Rich Roll, made it very much resonated with yeah. this shift that we're talking about. I think though, even him, I haven't listened to him in a long time, but I used to sometimes when I was like, I want to do all the things. Um, like he would cringe at the four hour work week type stuff because it was just like, what, like some like jackass 24 year old who has all the time in the world to do all the things writes this book and reflecting back, it's like, okay, it doesn't really make any sense. And, and he says that. Now, I will say it's a really interesting podcast. Um, they spent a lot of time talking about like psychedelics for mental health. And I think this is another area where Tim and I differ and neither of us are right or wrong. It's just different approaches. I think Tim tends to go to the extreme. So like yes. four hour work week, extreme productivity. And now it's like, you know, extreme depression, go on a 10 day silent retreat and then do mushrooms. Whereas I think I tend to be much more like only use the extremes of everything else has failed. Mm -hmm. So I don't know Tim's mental health history, but I would encourage someone that is struggling from depression or anxiety or OCD um, to first like go through therapy and maybe take like an SSRI for, Mm -hmm. you know, a year. And sometimes it can take a year to find the right medication And if all that fails, then yeah, like psychedelics hold a lot of promise. But I think that a lot of people like jump to the extreme thing um, before kind of doing like the boring stuff. But the the research is really clear that the boring stuff works. Yeah. Like most people recover from anxiety and depression or at least gain tools through a third wave therapy and then sometimes combined with an SSRI. People don't like to say it because it's so boring, but like evidence-based therapy and SSRIs work for most people. I mean, that's what I've been doing since December, both, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, SSRIs, they get a really bad rap. And now I'm putting like my public health adjunct professor hat on. Um, I'm not a physician. So obviously, like you know, this is not medical advice. SSRIs get a really bad rap because for certain people, like they really don't work and they come mm-hmm. with nasty side effects. Yep. But for the vast majority of people, if you are patient because they're weird drugs, no one really understands how they work. We can be pretty confident that they're safe because they've been studied for over 40 years now and there's no like evidence of long-term detriment. So Prozac was like early 80s, maybe even late 70s and then the clinical trials were before that. So we know that they're safe, but what we don't know is why some people respond to sertraline but not Lexapro. Mm-hmm. Or some people respond to Paxil but not Prozac, even though they're like very similar compounds. So I think where people run into traps is they're like, they try an SSRI, they gain a lot of weight, they don't feel better, and they're like, oh, like these meds don't work. And I think the job of a good provider, a good psychiatrist, is to set expectations and say, hey, this is a nine-inning game. It might take six months just to find the right med, but if you just stick with me and have confidence and do evidence-based therapy, like there's a 70 to 80% chance you'll get better. Um, and depending on the anxiety disorder and, and the extent of the depression, like those are the numbers. But the stories of recovery, they, we don't hear about them as much, I think, because one, no one wants to go onto social media and be like, look at me, I recovered, because that's kind of like a slap in the face to people who are suffering. Totally. And then the second is just like this negativity bias. Um, but I think it's important to share these kinds of things because if someone is suffering, hopefully it gives them hope that like, you don't have to jump into the deep end of like an ayahuasca trip necessarily to get better. Yeah. It's a lot less exciting and it's a lot less of a um, interesting story to tell. But like maybe you just need like an SSRI in therapy. Yeah. Um, not to mention that sounds really expensive. <laughs> yes. What he's doing. Um, 
I think that's part of why people are hesitant to start the medicine is that fear of like, it's going to take a while. I'm not going to get fixed right away. And, um, my mother took an SSRI once when she was actually, when she was dealing with not being able to run anymore, she got really depressed and she, cause she has a bad knee. I was in her home and she had a major hallucination freak out from this SSRI within an hour of taking it. And ever, and I wanted to take her to the ER cause I like, it was crazy, but she was an ER nurse and she was like, you are not taking me there. <laughs> Because she's like knows everybody at the hospital. Um, but anyway, so ever since then, I was always scared. And so when I finally got the courage to go to my doctor in December and get medicine and get help, I mean, I filled out that anxiety form, that just basic intake form, and I was through the roof on every answer. I mean, I was like yeah. the highest anxiety you could possibly have. Um, so cl clearly I needed something. I was terrified to take the medicine because I was terrified it would make me feel worse. And so... And especially that short-term hallucination that I saw my mom have. So I just planned it. I said, I'm not going to take it till my kids are at school. My husband's home. And like my mom said, my reaction was within an hour. So anyway, I didn't have a reaction. I assumed I would because I'm very similar to my mom in a lot of ways. And it's been really good for me. I would, I, I say all that to encourage people. Like if you think it might help you, give it a shot, talk to a doctor, fill out the anxiety form, whatever it is, because, um, I mean, I was desperate and it has been. Thank you for sharing that. And helpful. I'm sorry that you had to go through all that. I think another thing that also can help people make that decision is like, you just said, I'm desperate. So the most common side effects, and we, we sound like, like big pharma shills, like Brad <laughs> and Lindsay drug reps. Um, no, I think we're just both people that have benefited drastically, it sounds like, from SSRIs, or at least maybe benefited from SSRIs. I think I have. I mean, right. you it's never that know. with therapy, with, you know, my surgery's yeah. over. I don't know. Yeah, there's so many things. Um, the most common side effects that people are worried about are weight gain and loss of sex drive. Mm -hmm. And I think a good way to know if you're, like, a good fit for an SSRI is, like, when you're really depressed or you're really anxious, it's not like you're having great sex all the time. Right. Um, you're probably, like, I remember when I was, like, in a hole. I'm, like, I don't care if I gain 40 pounds. Like, mm -mm. as long as I stop having intrusive thoughts 24 hours a day, like, sign me up for the weight gain. Yep. And now I don't feel that way because I'm in a good spot. But, like, when, when you're suffering, generally, like, these side effects kind of pale in comparison to what you're going through. And, again, a good psychiatrist or a good physician – should help you, um, should help you tease that out. I know somebody had messaged me like, oh, I'm switching because I had been open about taking it. And she said, because I didn't like some of the side effects. And when she said, oh, if, don't, not, not to scare you, it's just weight gain. I was like, oh, psh, I don't care about that. Um, that being said, I have gained weight, but I have no idea if it's from the medicine or just like working out less because I had surgery. Like I have no idea. And I only take 25 milligrams, which isn't much um, yeah. from my understanding. But um, yeah, it's... It, exactly the same thing as you when I was in the depths of it you could tell me I was going to gain 50 pounds if I took it if it was going to make my mind better I did not care yeah and this is also we've gotten like way off topic from the book but I think this is an important conversation to have um this is also why I like the conspiracy theories that are out there about like drugs and doctors like wanting to get you hooked I think two things can be true at once I think number one with opioids and pain meds like the establishment fuck that up, like yep. all caps. Oh, it's bad. Drug companies, drug reps, certain like unethical physicians, but mainly the drug companies and the drug reps that sold this false promise. However, I also have some level of empathy for physicians that see someone that's just suffering. Mm. And like if someone is suffering, you want to help that person get out of their suffering. Yep. So you think about like more potent psychiatric meds. So antipsychotics, for example, a much more serious medication to consider taking. Dependency is higher. It's harder to come off of those. However, if you're a psychiatrist and someone is hallucinating and their life is falling apart because they think like the CIA is out to get them and they can't be a parent for their kids, you are going to use every tool at your disposal to help end that person's suffering. But then five years later, if that person can't get off those meds, that also sucks. Yep. And this kind of gets back to like being a mature adult and realizing like things aren't always black and white. Like it's hard out there. It's hard mm -hmm. to navigate these trade-offs. Yeah. Yeah. It's not black and white. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, the ultimate, the ultimate heuristic here is back to um, 
acceptance and commitment is there's this great line from Stephen Hayes, who's the founder of this therapy, that basically says, like, the essence of all this stuff is just to ask, like, is this helping me right now? Mm. And if the answer is yes, do it. The answer is no, don't. It's like, it's so simple for all these things. Like, they're tools. Is this helping me right now? Okay, so we're going to wrap up here, and I want to end on one of the topics that I really enjoyed in the book, which was tragic optimism, wise hope, and wise action. Um, I want to be optimistic about everything in my life, right? But, like, that's not realistic. So talk to us about this, what this even means. All right, so... Tragic optimism. It sounds like a dichotomy, tragedy and optimism. Right. Um, But the profound philosopher, psychoanalyst, Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl, who's well known for his book, Mm -hmm. Man's Search for Meaning. Yes. If you haven't read that, you guys have to go read it right now. It's so good. Beautiful book. Please just don't read it back to back with mine. It sets the bar impossible. Oh, please. Put a a book between the two. It's a different Um, kind of book. It is. But- Frankel is much less known for this essay that he wrote in follow-up to Man's Search for Meaning called The Case for Tragic Optimism. Mm. And Frankel is direct, and he just tells it like it is. He says that we are very fortunate to be here as humans and to be alive for this crazy, wild, beautiful life. Mm. And we are all going to suffer. Mm-hmm. Why? Because we are going to get old, and the people that we love are going to get old. Because we're made of flesh and bone, we are going to undergo all sorts of physical pain throughout our life. Because we can make plans, we're going to be really upset when some of those plans don't work. So part and parcel to being a human is tragedy. However, if we can maintain optimism throughout this, if we can protect our positivity, if we can have an attitude of hopefulness, not by pushing the tragedy away, not by pretending it's not there, not by being toxically positive or a Pollyanna, but by saying all this tragedy is here and yet, and yet I can still be hopeful. And this, mm-hmm. this, this suffering that we all go through actually ties us to each other. Like it's the foundation of like brotherly or sisterly love. So not like romantic love, but like I love you like a sister. I love you mm-hmm. like a brother. That tends to come from these shared experiences of being a human, of tragedy. And Frankel said that like what gives our life meaning and what allows us to go on is not tragedy or optimism, but putting them together and having what he calls tragic optimism. So to recognize and accept all that suffering and trudge ahead. And then in the book, I try to build on this in the littlest way by saying like, well, how do we do that? And I call it this notion of wise hope and wise action. And the way that I see it, because I spend time on the internet, is there's these two major extremes. One is Pollyanna, toxic positivity, everything is fine, I'm never gonna tune in, I'm gonna bury my head in the sand, Um, There's no polarization in this country. Trumpism isn't real. School shootings don't happen because I go to Whole Foods and everything is fine. The other extreme in more educated circles, I think this is the more popular extreme, is the exact opposite. It's despair. It's nihilism. It's everything sucks always. It's how dare you be happy about everything because of climate change. We're all going to die. And in between those two extremes, there is such a wide gulf for us to exist in. I'm going to piss some people off, but the people I piss off are the people that need to hear this. (laughs) Both of those extremes I mentioned are total fucking cop-outs. Yep. Because if everything's fine and you bury your head in the sand, it absolves you of the need to do anything. There's nothing to fix. But if everything is so terrible that you're hopeless, that also absolves you of the need to do anything. Because why work on a hopeless situation? Mm -hmm. So our job is to have wise hope, to realize that, yeah, there's a lot that's broken, but we've got to have hope. And like we've got to go forward with that hope. Um, and then turn that into wise action. So realizing that there's a lot that we can't control, but we can take these small steps. And even if it seems like we're trying to like piss in the ocean, if we all piss in the ocean together, it's not the best metaphor, like the water changes. Yep. Um, and I ultimately think that's what like tragic optimism, wise hope and wise action are all about. And I think it's the most important part of the book is there's this line in there. And I must've been on a, on a roll when I wrote it, because I think about this all the time, which is like, if we're going to fix a broken world, we can't become broken people. Mm. And it's so tempting to become a broken person, to just say to hell with it. Like, it sucks. Or like, not even going to pay attention. My life's good. Why would I worry about anything? Um, Or again, the opposite. Like, everything sucks, so forget about it. And I think our work is like staying in the middle and not falling into nihilism or despair, but also not falling into toxic positivity and like trying to work to make our situation, the situation of our communities a little bit better. 
the note that I wrote after that was understanding limits without giving up possibility. Oh, I love it. There's a quote too in the back of the book from Bruce Springsteen that's pretty that's, similar. That's, that's where I pulled it from. Yeah, I think he wrote that like yeah. being a mature adult is like meeting the world on its own terms, but like keeping hope or whatever. And like that's yeah. it. But that could, we're tying the conversation together. Like this is something that we talk about, which is like, I think like this book is like, this is the, if you're becoming a mature adult, a book, like, you know, me too. Yeah. Yep, for sure. Or at least no, trying I to. I love that piece. Um, all right, Brad, thank you so much for your time today and for all your work. I know how much heart and soul you put into these books and they matter. So thank you. Aw, thank you, Lindsay. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Brad, for coming on the podcast. Y'all can go to bradstolberg.com to learn more about what he's up to. Definitely go pre-order that book. Support my friend Brad and get so much out of his work. Master of Change out September 8th. It's a great one. You can learn more about this podcast and everything we talked about today at sandyboyproductions.com. Just click on the I'll Have Another tab. You can get signed up for our newsletter there. Big thanks to Prevenex, 2 Before, and Sidekick Tool for being supporters of this show. Discount codes to all of those awesome sponsors of the podcast will be at the show notes at sandyboyproductions.com. I'll also share about them on my Instagram, lindsayhines626. Thanks for being here, and we will see you next week on All Have Another Podcast.